0: So today we're starting a new series um, in 1 Corinthians. We're, we're calling it Undivided. And so we're going to go chapter by chapter through the book of 1 Corinthians because we believe that this book is where God has led us and we believe it's for a specific purpose. And as I've been studying and reading this week, I've learned and I've noticed around the nation, I've seen other churches na- announce this week and next week and the following, they're going to be starting a series through 1 Corinthians. I'm like, man, God's doing something through this book in the Big C Church. And I'm not sure what it is, but I'm excited to find out, right? And so if you haven't picked this up, we've, we've provided for you a reading plan. Who picked up a reading plan last week or found it online or found it in the app or, you know, three or four people? Good, okay. It's very, very, very simple. It's three or four verses a day. This is not something that takes the place of your Bible time, but it's just something that is a supplement, okay? It's not something, if, you, if, you have, if you've been struggling in your time with the Lord, maybe this is a place where you re-engage. I don't know. But what it does is this takes you through... And it takes you through a few verses a day on which chapter that we're on throughout the week. And by the time you come in here on a Sunday, you're able to be caught up and know what we're going to talk about on a Sunday morning. So it'd be really helpful for you. So there's hard copies as you leave today. It's on our website. It's on, our, it's on the Church Center app. So there's, it's everywhere for you, okay? So who's going to commit to grab one and start one today? Everybody. Okay, good. Cool. So if you start tomorrow, Monday, it's Monday to Thursday. You'll be ready for next week in chapter two. So it's exciting, right? So, so 1 Corinthians is going to challenge us, okay? It's going, to, it's going to challenge us. It's going to push us. It's going to grow us, which every book of the Bible, every word of God should do that, right? But this book is going to grow us as a church comprehensively if we listen to what Paul is saying in this book through the Holy Spirit. And remember, we always say this, but this book was written, not written to us, but it was definitely written for us, Right? And so as we read that, remember that this was something that was written for us. And so to kind of help you set up this series, Paul planted the church in Corinth on his first missionary journey. You can see all the details. If you want to write this down and go back, Acts chapter 18, you can see where Paul was planting this church. You can see, oh, you can read about Apollos. You can read about Paul, all these people coming in and planting the church in Corinth. Um, so. What we see is is Corinth was a very fast-growing church, fast-growing city in the Roman Empire. It had a, a beautiful port. It was a beautiful port city that turned this city into an economic powerhouse, and the, it was a popular vacation destination. You know, you don't really think about people taking des- uh, vacations back in the Bible days, right? But there was a, it was a place where people would come to to take a vacation, to have a retreat. Um, it, it attracted young and wealthy um, people from all over the the Roman Empire. It was it was in, the industry there was booming. Um, Sports was a a huge deal. Um, It it was young. It was rich with diversity. It was multicultural. The city had hundreds, hundreds of beautiful temples to Greek and Roman gods all across the city. The architecture was beautiful. It was amazing. Even today, today in today's time, there's a column that you use in construction and it's called a Corinthian column. It's, it's just, it was it was ahead of its time. And so, Paul lived in Corinth for about a year and a half, and what you see is Paul had led a lot of these young Corinthians to Christ. And when you're looking at this, it's a, it's a beautiful image. These people were coming to Corinth to get enlightened by the philosophers or, or to have a good time or with all the types of pleasures you could imagine, or, or they were coming to this place and they were met with Paul, and Paul shared Christ and the gospel, and Christ crucified and resurrected, and they came to Christ, and a church was formed there. And we see Paul loving the church. Paul loved this church. He was close with these people. But after Paul left, after a year and a half of being there, going to plant other churches in other cities, Paul began to get reports that this young church wasn't doing that well. They were giving in to the culture around them. So Paul writes this letter to to the Corinthians. He writes two letters. This is the first one. And it's broken down into five sections. The book is broken down into five sections as you start reading this. So have that in your mind. And the core ideas... In each section, Paul is going to highlight them through the filter of the gospel, as we should everything in our life, right? He's highlighting everything through the lens of the gospel. So the first thing we see is, we're going to look at today, is there were a lot of divisions among the body. There was, there was people over here. There was all these denominations, you know, all these things that were dividing the body of Christ. And we'll look at that today. That's chapters 1 through 4. We're going to look at that in chapters 1 through 4. Then second, they had some sex and romance confusion, Right? To put it mildly, um, and so as you look at that, sexual sin was happening in the church, and a lot of the members were using grace to justify it. Oh, it's, we're saved by grace; grace can cover it. It's okay. We're look how graceful we are. And it's, and Paul was like, "What are you doing?" Like, no. And so Paul is going. He's going to lay out some truth about sex, marriage, singleness, and divorce in chapters five through seven. So, yeah, we'll probably have a full house that those weeks. Um, Third, there was this hostility over the differences of conviction on what Christians were not allowed and what they were allowed to do as followers of Christ. And so specifically what we're going to look at is they could, whether they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols or not. And so you, so you hear that, you're like, man, that doesn't really apply to us. That's not really super relevant to us anymore because we don't really do that anymore, Right. But Paul is going to lay out some gospel-based principles that are going to show us how to deal with our differences on some convictions that we have today, like how we approach politics, whether we can drink or not as Christians, whether or not we, can, we need to get vaccinated, whether or not we should wear masks, all these types, of, these types of convictions that we have in the church that divide us sometimes, right? And Paul is going to show us that in, in chapters 9 and 10. Fourthly, their worship services had the tendency to be very chaotic, Right, And so Paul comes in, people were interrupting the church services saying the Holy Spirit had put something on their heart and, the, and they weren't being recognized. They would accuse the leadership of the church for quenching the Spirit. Um, a lot of people were shouting out in tongues and it was, it was just chaotic. There was no order. And so in chapters 11 through 14, Paul is going to lay out the structure and how those things work in proper order with the body of Christ as the Holy Spirit is moving. And then lastly, there were some, some people saying the resurrection of Jesus and, and, all of, and a lot of his miracles were not that important. And so as you read that, you're, they were saying that what Jesus taught and how he lived was more important than his resurrection. And so Paul is going to meet that in chapter 15. He's going to explain to them why the resurrection, an actual, physical, bodily resurrection is central to every believer. He's going to show us that in chapter 15. And so what we're going to see, I told you a moment ago, is that in discussing each of these topics, these issues, Paul follows a very specific pattern. You see it in 1 Corinthians. You see it in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You see it all throughout Scripture. You see the same pattern of teaching. He defines the issue. It's very simple. He defines the issue, and then he shows us that issue through the lens of the gospel. He says, this is the problem. Now, this is what the gospel has to say about it, basically, is what it says. And so, if you want to, 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 to get in your mind around Paul's basic teaching strategy, it's that no matter what the issue is, the gospel is the answer. Okay? And we can agree that's the same truth today, right? Uh, that's what it, we're saying. And so the gospel, that, 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 if you don't know what the gospel is, that's that all of us stand hopelessly condemned before God in our sin, but in God's grace, he came to earth through Jesus to die for our sin, and now he offers us eternal life as a free gift to all who receive it by faith. That's, right. that's beautiful. That's the gospel, the simple gospel. So you're saved by grace through faith. And so this morning, if you're wondering what that looks like, Maybe the Lord will begin to convict your heart and maybe today is the day of salvation for you that you would put your faith and hope into that message because that's the only way to salvation. So going deeper, going deeper into that message is the answer for everything in the Christian life. There's no going wider. We go deeper to grow, right? Where there's nothing we add to that message because it's complete. We go deeper into that message. so what I love about the book of 1 Corinthians is I was reading this week. I read the first, the first chapter like 17 times. And I feel like I started judging these people. Like, these guys are idiots, man. What's wrong with these people? Like, what's, what's going on? But I feel like I started noticing some tendencies of my own self and my own church in 1 Corinthians. I was like, man, maybe they're not idiots. Maybe we're all idiots, right? Maybe, maybe we all struggle with the same things. Maybe we're all human and have sin, right? Okay? So I'm reading this. I'm like, man... They could have, Paul could have written this to us, like to our church. There's divisions in this church. You're like, wait a minute, what? First time here is true. No matter where you go, there's going to be divisions of some sort because there's sinful people in the church. So we have people here who are confused on sexual and relationship issues. We have people here who are reformed in their theology. We have people here who are not reformed in their theology. We have people here that are more charismatic. We have people here that are not as charismatic. We have people here that vote red. We have people here that vote blue. We have people here that vote whoever's popular, right? We have people who don't know how to vote. We have people who have differing views on worship and church models. We have people, the list is long. And the problem is, I think it's beautiful the beauty is the bigger we grow, the longer that list will get. And that's what Paul is showing us. He's, and as you read this book you beca- and, you, and you become tempted to judge this church, remember that we aren't very far removed from where they were. You know, and, and I, I'm reminded that any church that sets their heart and their mind to being busy on reaching people, they will have these types of problems. Right? Because you have people who are coming in that are unchurched or unsaved. They're gonna bring their issues in with them. They're not gonna leave them at the door, right? We're gonna have issues that we're, I still need to get rid of in my life. You, if you think I'm perfect, you're crazy. Like, I have some stuff I need to lay down every day. Like, we all have these things that we hold on to and these preferences and secondary things that we hold on to that if we let them, they will divide. And so what you see, these issues that we're seeing is we start reaching people, these people who are being sanctified just like us. It will force us to reach across political lines. It will force us to reach across financial lines and financial barriers. It will force us to reach across secondary issues and preferences and learn how to unite around the gospel. You see that? And that's the heart around what we're doing in this chapter, what Paul is going to be talking about. So If you show me a church right now where everybody agrees on everything, where everyone looks the same, where everyone acts the same, where everyone votes the same, where everyone comes from the same socioeconomic background, I'll show you a church that's dying. And this morning, my heart is that we would be a church that would fight against that trend that we see across our country. And I'd much rather deal with all these types of problems than be a dying church where everybody looks and acts like cones, Right? I mean, I, I, so let's, you know, it's in our differences and, in, and it's in our unity despite our differences that Jesus will be lifted most high among us. Right. And so let's look, I want to start in chapter one, verse one, and i want to go through verse 10 to start off with. And so let's look at that together. So here we go. Paul says, Paul called in a, as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And and Sosthenes, our brother. So Sosthenes was probably the one who dictates this message. So Paul is talking and Sosthenes is writing. You hear that? So he's writing this out for Paul. And so that's, and so to the church of, of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who called on the name of the Lord, Christ our Lord, both theirs, Lord, and ours. Grace to you and peace From God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God has given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched. That means you were improved or enhanced in him, in Christ, in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. And so I love this because the church, every church has two addresses. You have a spiritual address, which is Jesus, you're in Christ, and you have a physical address in Corinth, right? So you are in Christ. In Savannah, in Christ, in Effingham, in Bryan, in Liberty, wherever you live at, you're in Christ, in that city to do things. And so he calls us out and says, You're called, you are separate you sanctified, you're set apart. You've been enriched in every ways. Super dark. Can not see? There we go. Okay. So, so there, was, there were probably, what we're seeing here is, is Paul is telling them who they are. Paul is giving an affirmation first. He's affirming them in who they are in Christ. Despite of their division, despite of their issues with confusion, despite of their issues, this is who you are in Christ. And it's important that that's where we start at this morning, that who you are in Christ. He goes on and says, In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift. As you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, right? You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, now, verse 10. Verse 10 is probably the theme verse for this chapter. If you're a note taker, underline it, circle it, whatever you want to do it. It's the main verse for this chapter, but it is probably the main verse for this entire book. Let's just be real. Verse 10. He says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there are no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. And so I want to start off by showing you what he says. He says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He invoked the name of God to tell them how important unity is in the church. Do you see that? He's saying, "In the name of Jesus, I urge you to agree on the gospel." He says, "I urge you now. I urge you that there be no divisions among you." And so, as you're reading this, we're going to look a little bit further in a second. But what were these divisions? You're going to see this in a second. So after Paul had left, there was these other teachers. Apollos—you can look at this in Acts chapter 18, like I said earlier—and there was Apollos and there was Cephas, who is Peter. If you see Cephas in the Bible, it's probably Peter, the the apostle Peter. And they had come to Corinth after Paul had left, and people had picked their favorite teachers, right? The Corinthians basically became these groupies around specific teachers and began to talk badly about the people who followed these other teachers. Does that sound familiar? I follow Calvin. I follow Platt. I follow Piper or Chan or MacArthur or Johnson. Add the name to the list, it's the same thing. We're following people instead of God. And so some people would say, I'm with Paul because Paul is a great theologian. He breaks down scripture. I love listening to Paul teach. I've tried to memorize some of his letters because his letters are so informative to what we're trying to do as a body of Christ. And so good. And some other people would say, well, Paul is a great on theology, but Paul is super boring because you can even read. He self-admittedly claims this in 2 Corinthians. He says, my writing, I can do good on writing. I'm terrible at speaking is what he says in the 2 Corinthians. Don't believe me. Go read the book. It's, It's there. Acts chapter 20. A man is listening to Paul preach all night, falls asleep. Out the window, dead. Paul goes down, raises him back to life, continues to preach. Look it up. It's in there. The Bible's awesome, right? Paul was not a good speaker. He was boring, okay? But he was a great theologian. He was great. Other people said, I belong to Peter. Peter was with Jesus. I gotta follow Peter because Peter walked with Jesus. He was was the one that walked on water. I gotta follow him because he he can teach. He's he's a little rougher on the edges. He's a fisherman. He's not as smart as other people, so I can follow him, you know? And so then then we have this group that I think that is in every church. I belong to Christ. Right? I'm, I follow Jesus, right? I'm, those are the people that are kind of like, everybody has someone like this. And a few commentators that I was reading this week said this group might have been the most arrogant group of all. As you listen to this, because they assumed that they didn't need the church. Just me and Jesus, just hanging out at the coffee shop. Just me and Jesus. I don't want your Bible studies. I don't want, I don't want your connect group. I just want me and Jesus. We're going to just do life together. We're okay. I don't need anything except me and Jesus, which is true. But the church comes along with Jesus. And the hardest that you would see the human nature enjoys following leaders, don't we? We love to have human leaders. We, we tend to identify more with spiritual leaders who help us and whose ministry we understand and enjoy, don't we? We tend to latch on to those people, but instead of emphasizing the message of the word, the Corinthians were emphasizing the messenger so what we're seeing is they took their eyes off of the Lord and onto the Lord's servants, and it led to the vision. And I love Paul's sarcasm here as we go in to read this chapter. It's going to be great. I love it. It's so good. As you're going to see Paul's response to what he's saying, Paul is saying this isn't a popularity contest. This isn't, oh, I like Paul or I like Peter or I like this person or that person. This is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. The church's leaders and their teachers are just servants of Jesus. They're not the ones who are to be focused on. So while you may prefer one teacher or another teacher, it's not worth dividing over and definitely not worth speaking poorly over against one another. It's all about Jesus. And so not much has changed today, guys. We've got our own preferences, don't we? I, I do. We all do. And we end up dividing over our different theological leanings. We end up dividing over our different ministry focuses, things we like and think the church should be focused on that it's not focused on, right? It's all about, it's all about missions. It's got to be all about missions. It's, it's all about discipleship. Discipleship's important. We've got to do those things. It's all about theology. We've got to talk about theology. If you don't have good theology, you have nothing. It's all about outreach. It's all about community. It's all about blank. Fill in the blank. And what happens is, while all those things are great, and we need to focus on all of those things somewhat, if those things become the focus, we we lose focus. And what happens is there are over 200 evangelical denominations in the United States today who claim to believe the gospel. But they're divided over preference and secondary issues. And I want to tell you this morning, it's okay to have preferences. Don't hear me say, preferences are bad, because they're not. I have preferences. It's okay to have preferences. It's okay to have leanings. But it's not okay to be divided over your preferences or secondary issues. It's not okay. And there's nothing wrong with being attracted to different preferences. Sometimes what happens, you have a specific calling or gifting that may make you lean a certain way. Maybe God's called you to, to be a missionary or have the gift of mercy, and God's leaning you into missions. But that doesn't mean you drag the whole church that way. It's just a, you compliment the church with your heart for missions. Listen, it, you, you, he may be calling you to, to, to have a deep love for theology. That, means, that may mean you're supposed to be a teacher. But that doesn't mean you drag the whole church to be theologians. And forget this. We're called to be united around the gospel, united around Jesus, and complement one another. I love that because what's wrong is when these preferences are accompanied, but what happens is these preferences become divisive. These preferences start creating a divisive spirit in the church, and that creates separation. Have, y'all, have this been y'all's experience in church? Have you seen this? And believers are never told to become one. We already are one and we are expected to act like we're one. That's That's what John 17 talks about. And the burden of Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, first the first Corinthians says okay. To the Corinthians, y'all have to bear with me, please. Um, the, the Paul's letter to the Corinthians was that the Corinthians' lives would begin to reflect more clearly their spiritual position in Christ. So that's what we're looking at. The church in Corinth wasn't living out what they said they believed. Who in here struggles to live out what you say you believe about Christ? We all do. But my heart is that we would not. My heart is that we would dig in and and start letting the world see what we truly believe. So let's go back to verse 10. It says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, circle all of you, agree in what you say there will be no divisions among you, that you are united with the same understanding and the same conviction. And so the first thing that we're seeing, Paul, Paul is going to give us three or four responses to this divisive spirit that was bubbling up in the church. And so I think it is relevant for us because there's a divisive spirit that has a tendency to bubble up in every church. And so our heart today is that we will be committed to these three or four things. And so the first thing we see Paul talking is he's saying you are called as a body of Christ. You're called to unity. You are called to unity. You were called to be united around the name of Christ. And so my heart is that, you, well, well, what does that mean, Michael? Uh, what does it mean that all of you agree there'll be you no know, divisions, that you're united with the same understanding, the same convictions? What does that mean? How do you do that? Thank you, Paul, for telling us that. Now, now we all agree everything's good. No, that's not what happened probably. So Paul isn't writing. This is what I want you to see. Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians to settle all their arguments. He's not writing 1 Corinthians to even answer all their questions. What he's doing is he's reminding them to hold the gospel high, to have the same convictions and understandings about the gospel. Uh, It's not saying have the same understandings about worship, have the same understandings about a relationship, or have the same understandings about all these different things. He's saying have the same understanding about the gospel, and that will cover the rest of it. And that's the heart as you look. And so to love one another more than these secondary issues that they were facing. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite, he said, unless I, lo- I, unless I can leave off loving Jesus, I cannot cease loving those who love him. And so if my brother has a differing view on me is that secondary and, and I don't love him, I'm sinning, we need to find a middle ground. Psalms 133, I love this chapter of the Bible, Psalms 133 verse 1. David writes, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And so remember, guys, remember these two or three things. Remember, biblical unity does not equal uniformity. Biblical unity does not equal uniformity. Where everyone looks the same, where the church agrees on everything all the time, that's robotic, and that is unrealistic. If you're looking for a church like that, this is not the one. The next one you go to won't be the one. The 10th one you go to won't be the one because you're not going to find that on earth. The only place you're going to find that is in heaven. And even then, our differences what's going to make us beautiful? I love that. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of gospel unity is that the church can be unified despite its differences because we hold the gospel so high that it makes everything else, our disagreements, our secondary issues less important because the gospel is most important. As we look at that, so let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. So Chloe's house had been telling to Paul about these people. You know, they, they, snitches get stitches, right? So these people were saying, look, these, these people ain't doing the right thing. Like they're 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 dividing over secondary issues, but it's not they were tattletaling. These people were holding the church accountable. They were going to the apostle Paul, the leader of the church, and saying, the things you have taught have been misconstrued, have been, have been just disunified, have changed, and the church is, is disjoining. We're all over the place. Please, come, write us a letter. Come visit us. Tell what's going on in the church is not glorifying to God. And so you see Chloe's people. He says, Chloe's people have reported to me that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, Colin, One of you says, I belong to Paul. Or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Peter or Cephas or I belong to Christ remember those guys is Christ divided was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in Paul's name I think and this is where it gets good this is where we see Sosthenes dictating for Paul and he he just keeps writing at this point I feel like Paul just kind of has a diversion he kind of gets distracted in this conversation and he just keeps writing I love this guy listen He says, I thank God that I I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my names. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to... And he comes back in. Snap back into it, Paul. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? To preach the gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its effects. Biblical unity doesn't equal Passivity. Listen to that today. Biblical unity does not equal passivity. That, that I give in to your views on something because I want to keep the peace. But that's, that doesn't, that's not what biblical unity does. Some Christians believe that the only way that we can be unified is by refusing to take clear stands on anything. Some of you may be falling to that today. I don't know. But Paul is saying that we have to take a stand on the gospel or we have lost our identity as God's people. And so things like the person and the work of Christ, the, the nature of saving faith, the inerrancy of the Bible, the, or even God's desires for gender and sexuality. We have to take clear stands on these things biblically. Those are things that are not secondary or are not preferences. Those are things that are scriptural. The next thing I look at and I see as I read this is biblical unity doesn't equal relativism. There's no relativism in the Bible. That You don't get to have your own truth. I'm sorry for us today in our culture is that we don't have our own truth. There's one truth. There's no, relativism is one of the biggest enemies in the church. You can see the progressive church are going down this path and where everybody is right and everyone has their own version of the truth. The question is, are we, are we unified around the gospel, the understanding of the gospel and how important that message is? There's been studies done, I don't have the statistic, but there's been studies done in churches on who can articulate the gospel and the stats are, are staggeringly low. People in the church who claim Christ. Do we have the same convictions together to see the gospel reach the places that it's not? Or are we distracted or sidetracked by our feelings on certain secondary issues? I pray that we're not. Paul's vision for unity is this supernatural bond that has given each of us eternal eyes to see what really is important as I look at Scripture. It's real people, it's with different perspectives and preferences who find a larger hope in Jesus. So what I see is that unity is having the same conviction about the gospel, the same understanding about its importance, and then attempting to think about everything through the lens of the gospel. And this is how the church will be effective. This is how the church will reach the nations. This is how the church will reach their neighborhoods. This is how the church will reach across the aisle and of, of your workplaces or, or, your, or your offices. The second thing I see is we're called by grace. We're called to unity, and we're called by grace. You can look in verse 17. We'll start there in a second. But it's interesting to see that Paul, as we look into verse 17, Paul is beginning to—he's going, to, going to approach this problem of division in the church— At first, he points to the unity of Christ, in Christ, that there's one shepherd, one body, right? One shepherd, one body. We're not divided. And then in verse 13, he reminds them about their baptism into the body of Christ, and then he takes them to the cross. He always does that. I love it. He brings us back to the cross. The cross is the introduction to this section on the power of the gospel versus the weakness of man's religion and wisdom. And so let's start in verse 17. Let's look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power is in the gospel, not in a personality or in the wisdom of a teacher. The power is in the gospel message. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those, if you have a Bible and some, that, if you want to write unsaved, the, 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 the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are unsaved, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And then he, goes into, he quotes Isaiah 29 here, says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. He goes on and says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Well, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since, the, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who, are, who believe through the foolishness of what is being preached. For the Jews asked for a sign and the Greeks asked salt wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the answer. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And so what Paul is doing here is he's showing what doesn't produce salvation. He's showing you what does not produce salvation. No amount of wisdom or knowledge will reveal Christ to you. You are saved by the grace of God alone. And as he reveals himself to you and you put your faith in him, you become saved. And so as you see that, it's something that you can't produce in your own power. I'm going to be a better person. Why not? That? I'm going to follow Jesus stronger. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. And then God's going to love me more. Guys, that, that game has been played for so long. That's not the way to salvation. It's, it's something that you can't produce in your own power. The grace of God being poured out on undeserving sinners is what should amaze us. That should blow your mind. That God, the creator of all things, has chosen you to save you and he poured his grace out on you. That should bring us to our knees and just, just reverence to know that that's happened in your life. That's what I love about this passage of Scripture. He talks about the wise one. He talks about the teacher of the law. The wise one is the expert, the one that knows, the, the, knows about the law. The teacher of the law is the interpreter of Scripture. Where is the debater of this age? He's talking to the philosophers of Rome and Athens and Greeks. What he's seeing is like all these people thought they could reason away religion. They thought they could reason with God and reason who Jesus is. They can reason these things, and they can learn enough to be saved. But Paul is talking to a bunch of of Greeks and Jews who have their versions of how they believe they could be saved, right? Today is not much different. We have denominations and religions that believe you have to be baptized to be saved. They believe you have to do this and this and this to be saved. And there's these different versions and the the only way to know what's true and what's not true is to be grounded in the word of God and know it. And our heart today is that that's what would happen in this church. But what you see is, He says, where's the one who's wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? And what Paul was saying is saying, Jesus doesn't save you through philosophy. He doesn't save you through some higher knowledge. Salvation wasn't figured out by philosophers who studied to understand it. Salvation appeared in a dirty manger surrounded by a bunch of poor shepherds. And that blew their mind. What? That doesn't make sense. That's foolishness, right? Listen, Jesus doesn't save us through earthly conquest, right? He doesn't save us. The the Jews thought that Christ was going to come as a conquering king to deliver them from Rome, so the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. You were supposed to save us, but you delivered yourself to the enemy, And and they stumbled right over the cross that was meant to save them. So in verse 22, what you see, it says, For the Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom. And so what you see throughout Jewish history, it's filled with these miraculous events. Look from Genesis all the way through the Bible. You'll see these miraculous events, these miracles So from from the deliverance out of Egypt in Exodus until we see Elijah and Elisha, all these miracles that were happening. And so when Jesus was ministering on earth, the Jewish leaders were constantly asking Christ to do what? Perform a sign to show us who you truly are. You know, give us a sign to show us who you are. They didn't understand their own scriptures. Psalms 22, Isaiah 53, they just kind of brushed past it. They didn't understand that Christ had not come as a conquering king, but as a substitute. The second time he's going to come back as a conquering king. And what we see in this is that the Jews were looking for power and glory, and they stumbled at the weakness of the cross. And so God didn't save us by sending us a leader, a military leader to to lead us or a, a teacher to educate us. He sent us a substitute to die for us. And as I read this, as I look at verse 23, it says that he saves us through what? The foolishness of preaching. What does that mean? Like, listen, the foolishness of preaching means that what I really say up here is really simple, like, what I say up here is not that hard. It's like, I have a, it's kind of hard for me some days because like, I feel like I say the same thing over and over and over again, but that's my job is to remind you of who you are in Christ and the gospel over and over and over and over again, and, right? And so that's the hardest is to see. Put your trust in Christ and follow him and I should just walk away. Right? It's not about me. It's not about any teacher. It's about Christ. Put your heart in Christ. Lean your life on him. Give your life to him. Go where he says go. Do what he says do until you're dead and watch what God does in your life. Good. It's not about a pastor. It's not about a teacher. It's about Jesus. And so this morning I pray that's who you put your hope in. Well, what does that mean about unity? How does that affect our unity? Well, let me tell you this. When you understand the concept of grace, that you're called by grace, the spirit of divisiveness leaves you. Because what happens is behind divisiveness is always this spirit of pride and self-justification. I, I want to be, be justified. I, I, have, I have this to offer, right? You know, you're, you're attracted to certain things, whether it's missions or discipleship or theology or all these things that we talked about earlier, because they make you feel superior in some way to other people. You may not admit that, I have a hard time spitting that out, but I do the same thing. We all do. We're all human. And as I read this, what I'm seeing is that having more Bible knowledge than other people makes us still righteous, right? And so, so we take pride in being a part of a church that excels in biblical knowledge. You know, that that sets us apart and makes us better than others somehow. Being the most zealous for social justice makes us feel righteous. So that's the one thing I want to, to be true of my church because I want to be identified with that, guys. But we're not saved by any of these things. We're not saved by any of it. We forget the gospel and that we were saved by grace. Guys, we're saved by Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we have to remember. Write it on your forehead, on your hands. Write it on a mirror. Remember that you are saved by grace through faith. And the grace of God through Jesus in your life is the only hope that you have in this life. And I pray this morning that you would remember that. Because at the end of the day, let me tell you this. All my wisdom, which is there's, that's not a lot. And Bible knowledge, which is not a lot. And worldly success, which that's definitely not there. But you may have a lot of worldly success. The social justice issues that we go after and fight after, guys, Isaiah 64 says those things are filthy rags to God. And you're like, what? Those are good things. Yeah, but doing those things apart from Christ gets you nowhere. Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul says, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. It says, what is more? I consider all, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Yes. Can I say that again? Yes. What is more? What in your life is more? What, you, what does this world have to offer you that is more? It's 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 loss. Everything is a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Knowing, not knowing about Jesus, not, knowing, not going to church and hearing sermons or going to Bible studies, not reading your Jesus calling book, not all this, knowing Jesus personally, that gnosco, that intimate knowledge of who Christ is. It says, "I consider everything garbage. The word in the Greek for Philippians three verse eight, for garbage is a cursed word in our language. It is. Go look it up, it's that I may gain Christ. Everything's garbage that I may gain Christ. And I'm saved by Christ who became righteousness and wisdom and success for me. And I get all of the things in him. What did he say in verse 24? He says, he says, yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power that the Jews were wanting and the wisdom that the Greeks were wanting. Christ is all. Christ Christ meets all those things. In you, and I love that. So, and when we embrace that, we'll find that our pride crumbles because I'm understanding grace. That without Christ, I can't have any of that. I'm just I'm just a clanging symbol that just goes around and around, seeking for fulfillment. All these things in this world, that spirit of divisiveness leaves us. Guys, we've said it before from this stage multiple times, but grace, grace is the power of God working in you and doing through you what you cannot do in your own ability. A lot of you are like, well, I thought it was unmerited favor. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But I think it's a lot deeper than that. Grace is the ability of God working in you and doing through you what you cannot do in your own ability. You're saved by grace. You couldn't do it. By grace, I share the gospel because I can't do it by myself. By grace, I I love my wife. By grace, I love my kids. By grace, I I pastor a church. I can't do it in my own ability. I need Christ. I need grace to envelop me every day. or I can't do it. Grace. We're called by grace. third thing, we're called to humility. 10 out of 10 people in this room are selfish. 10 out of 10 people in this room struggle with pride. I'm going to ask for a show of hands because y'all lied to me. Like, right. Another sign of pride, right? So we all struggle with pride. We all struggle with pride in this room, myself included. He says this in verse 26, brothers and sisters, I love this. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective not many of you powerful, not many of you of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Paul is like speaking in riddles here, but he's not. He says, so that no one may boast in his presence. I don't need to go too deep into this because I think you get it. Consider what you were before Christ. If you can't look back at your life and remember who you were before Christ, there's something wrong. You need to go back and revisit that man and say, God has saved me, redeemed me. He has called me. He has has brought me from a broken man to a a saved man, and I'm nothing without Christ. That produces humility in me. Because like you and like me, the Corinthians had this tendency to be puffed up with pride. They had this tendency to be puffed up with pride, but the gospel leaves no room for boasting. You have nothing to boast about in this life. God is not impressed with our religion. He's not impressed with our achievement. He's not impressed with our financial status. I don't care if you die having $10 million. God's not impressed with that. You're going to be judged or you're going to stand before God just like a man who had nothing. Our heart today is that we see that in verse 26, the description that Paul gives to the converts was certainly not a flattering one as he gives, two, he gives us two reminders. He reminds us of what they were. Remember what you were. They weren't wise. They weren't noble. They weren't mighty. God called them not because of what they were, but in spite of what they were. That's grace, and that grace should prov- provoke humility in us. My favorite verse in Scripture, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. It said, It is by grace you have been saved. Through what? Faith. By grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works. So that what? No one can boast. This morning, if we're struggling with humility and pride, I pray that we would lay that down on this altar. Pray. Let God heal that, that in you because most of the time when we have pride in our life, it honestly is a cover-up and a mask for insecurity. That insecurity is what God wants. He wants to meet that insecurity with his love and grace and mercy. And he can't do that. He can't can't redeem a mask that you're wearing. So as you read this, the Corinthian church was composed of these ordinary people who were terrible sinners, as we are. Before his conversion, what had Paul been? He had been a self-righteous, prideful man. He, he He had given himself over to religion in order to be saved. You know, and as I read that, the Corinthians were at the other end of that perspective. They were—they were not—they were, not, were not too sinful for God to save them. And As I read this, like the next thing I see is Paul reminds them why God called them. Was it God chose the foolish, the weak, and the despised to show how proud, how, how, show the proud world their need of His grace? And what I see in that is the world admires social status, the world admires financial success and power, but none of these things will save you, none of them. And so as I read this, guys, the miracle of God's grace in Jesus, what it does is it confuses or it puts to shame the high and mighty people of this world. And what's happened is that some of these high and mighty people have infiltrated the church and have tried to change this message a little bit. And as I read this, as I look at this, the wise of this world, the wise people of this world, can't understand how God changes sinners into saints. And the mighty of this world are are helpless to duplicate this miracle. And as I read this, I'm reminded that God's foolishness confuses the wise, and God's weakness confuses the mighty. Do you see that? So we're left with a bunch of confused people that are met with the cross. Church history is full of people, with the accounts of people whose lives were transformed by the power of the gospel. Look throughout scripture. Throughout my life in church, as I've, I've been in church for a while, I've, I've seen things take place that lawyers, that psychologists, that counselors, that teachers, that bosses, are, that they can't understand what happened to this person. There's people in this church that before you were saved... What happened? Like you were this way, now you're the, I don't understand what's going on here, man. This is different. I've seen marriages restored. I've seen homes reclaimed much to the amazement of the court systems. I've seen teenagers caught up in drugs and alcohol and lust turned into missionaries and pastors. How does God do this? How does this happen? What happens? Verse 29, that no one may boast in his presence. It's not anything that they've done. It's Christ in them. Salvation equals grace alone. Otherwise, God cannot get the glory. It's this truth that Paul wanted to get across to the Corinthians because they were guilty of glorifying men. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Jesus, right? And so what we see is if we glory in men, even godly men like Peter or Paul or Apollos, we are robbing God of the glory that he alone deserves. And so it was this sinful attitude of pride that was helping cause the division in this church. And as we go into the last point, as the band comes back, the last point is in verse, we're going to read verse 30 and 31. It says, it's from him that you in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom for, from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In that order, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we see the fourth thing Paul reminding us to do is to make much of Christ, to make much of Christ. As I read this, Paul reminds us that all we have in Christ Jesus, since we, since every believer is in Christ and he is all that we need, we see that why should we compete with one another or compare ourselves to each other or why should we try to, to, to push our preferences to the front? It's the Lord who has done it all in our salvation, so make much of him. Every spiritual blessing that we need isn't found in striving, isn't found in a teacher. It's not found in the world. It's found in Christ, in Jesus. It says he is our wisdom. You can look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. He is our wisdom. He says he is our righteousness. You can look in 2 Corinthians 5 21. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. All these things. And I pray that our ears are open this morning to see that each of these theological words carry a special meaning for Christians. If he's our righteousness, it means he is righteousness. What it has to do with is that our standing before God, we are justified. God declares us righteousness, righteous in Christ Jesus if we're in Christ. But we're also sanctified. We're sanctified. We're set apart to belong to God and to serve him. And then we're redeemed. He's our redemption. And that emphasizes the fact that we're set free because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross. So in a sense, we live in three different tenses as a Christian. Hear this this morning. You're living in three different tenses You you have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's your righteousness. You are being saved from the power of sin. That's your sanctification. And then redemption is we shall be saved from the presence of sin at the return of Christ and the glorification of our bodies. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of what we're doing here as a body of Christ. And every believer has all of these blessings in Christ. So therefore, why glory in men? Why why try to do anything other than just glorify Christ and remember the gospel and, and put it central in what we're doing, being unified around what he's already done? And so this morning... I don't know where you're at with your faith. I'm not sure if you know Christ this morning. Maybe you've been playing games for a long time, where you're saying, "Hey, I go to church. Hey, that's enough, right? Hey, maybe I one time I raised my hand here or did this here, but after that, my life didn't change that much. Or maybe I got confirmed at this church or got baptized at this church. And it'd be, but maybe you don't know Christ like the Bible talks about in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, where Paul says, "I count all things lost compared to the surpassing greatness." of of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That gnosko, no, it means to intimately know that Lord and Savior Jesus. And what that gnosko word means is it it references back to a husband and wife relationship where you know your husband and your wife mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. But so many people say, hey, I'm associated with Christ, so I'm saved. I may, I may have, have, have caught a feeling or emotion one time in a worship service, so that means I'm saved. But the, the Bible says that you will know them by their fruit. What does the fruit of your life say? Does the fruit of your life say that you're following closely with Jesus? Does the fruit of your life say that you have received the gift of salvation through, through, by grace through faith? Is that what your life says? Or does it say something totally different, that you are living a life that's kind of flatlined spiritually? Let's don't play games with our faith anymore because there's so much to be done in the kingdom of God in this place, in this city, in this world. This morning, I pray that God is pulling at your heart. If God is speaking to your heart and saying, today is a day of salvation for you, brother, sister, listen, today is a day to step out in faith. We want to celebrate that with you. We want to see this place uproar with praise and know a brother and sister has come home and has turned from their sin and turned towards Christ. So this morning, if, if you, you say, hey, you've given it lip service. Yeah, I believe that, that I've been saved. I believe that, you know, God's gift of salvation was given to me on my rags for his riches. You know, God, God made him who, who knew no sin to be my sin, and, and he's given me his righteousness in return. I may have said that before, but I've never put feet on that before. And you know today, you know, I need to make a decision on that and, and, and pray with someone and learn how to take some next steps, because I've been doing it on my own for too long. If that's somebody in this room, I pray today that you would have the boldness to, to, to have a statement of faith. We, we call that a declaration. We call that, a, we call that we, we, we come into a public declaration of faith. This morning, if that's you, would you be so bold to raise your hand and say, that's me today. I need, I need that. Is that you this morning? It's the day, day of salvation for somebody as we've been reading this today, as we've as been going through this gospel message today. Is that anybody? You don't have to do this in a church, by the way. It's be done in your home. But I always want to give people an opportunity after we share the gospel to respond to it. Okay, if that's nobody today, then I pray that you use this time of worship to come to this altar. Maybe, maybe it looks like just reconnecting your heart and your life to Christ. Come and say, God, I've, I'm not, I've not lived the way that I've, I've heard, I've just heard laid out in scripture. I, I haven't lived that way. I, God, I need you to forgive me. And then start walking that out in obedience. So let me pray for you. And as I pray, you come. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you are. We thank you for what you've called us to in Christ, his unity. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. I pray this morning that this will be a church where, where Christ's spirit rests. God, I pray that we would be a church that honors you first in word and in deed. God, I pray that you would work yourself out of this church, into this community, and into this world. God, that you would do things that we never could imagine, Father. I pray for the person that is home watching online. God, I pray for if it's fear or if it's a struggle they're dealing with, God, I pray that you would meet them where they're at on their couch, on their dining room table, God, wherever they may be, in their car. God, I pray for people living in sin today. God, I pray that you would just point those things out, that you would convict, that you would just destroy that sin, Father, and that you would bring them into a relationship with you. God, we love you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.